Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello and welcome to episode 846. We got Robert Glazer back sharing how to elevate, equip, empower your teams. You'll learn one, how to cure exhaustion in teams. Two, the simple trick to making difficult conversations easier. And three, how to influence company culture without being in a leadership position. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP846. Now, here's a little bit about Robert. Robert Glazer is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners, a global partner marketing agency and the recipient of numerous industry and company culture awards, including Glassdoor's Employees' Choice Awards, two years in a row. He's the author of the number one Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and international best-selling author of four books, Elevate, How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, Friday Forward, and Performance Partnerships. He's a sought-after speaker by companies and organizations around the world and is the host of the Elevate podcast. He also shares ideas and insights around these topics via Friday Forward, a weekly inspirational newsletter that reaches over 200,000 individuals and business leaders in over 60 countries. Big thanks to Robert for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Robert. Robert, welcome back to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thanks for having me, Pete. Well, I'm excited to get into the wisdom of your book, Elevate Your Team. But first, I got to hear, it's been a couple years since we last chatted. It's been a pandemic. That it has. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, any particularly wild adventures, learnings, surprises in your life over the last couple of years? It's just been such a supply and demand seesaw that it's been nothing like in my career. I'm someone who likes to plan long-term and in the business and think two, three years ahead. And it's just been three to six months is is kind of as far as you can look. I would say the biggest thing was we were a fully virtual team for 12 years coming into COVID and we hit it at times and it wasn't something that we were really public with. And then it just, everyone was like, oh, you've done this. How do you do this? I ended up kind of writing a book around it. So that was a little bit of a whirlwind going from sort of keeping the fact that we were fully remote a little bit on the download to sort of becoming an exemplar and speaker and an author around it. And by the way, I just talked to a large company this morning, two, three years later, people still haven't figured out what they're going to do with this. And it's pretty interesting to me. They either haven't figured out the strategy or they kind of have a strategy, but they haven't supported it. And 
this company was saying they have all kinds of rules for remote work that no one has actually read or, or, or adheres to. Yeah, totally. I remember even before the pandemic, there were debates in terms of, oh, so-and-so is moving and they want to move work remotely. And they're like, oh, well, we uh, don't allow that. Like, even then I was sort of, well, I'd been working self-employed remotely for a long time. And so I thought it was a really head scratcher. Like, if this person is excellent and they want to stay working for you, I think you should accommodate them. That's my bias. <laughs> so here's my favorite thing. And I was doing a keynote yesterday morning and I have this slide that I used for a long time and I wasn't going to use it, but it was David Solomon of Goldman Sachs in January, 2022, saying that work from home is an aberration that they're going to cure as soon as possible. And it's this like horrible thing that needs to be fixed. A week later, Goldman announces the best quarterly earnings in the history of the company with everyone working from home. So now they forced people back in the office. Goldman's earnings come out last week. They're the worst in like 20 years. Like, and they missed earnings are down 60%. It's a disaster. It's just so funny. It's like, what actually matters? Does it matter where and how people are? Now, look, I am not a, everyone should be remote. I think if you're Goldman and you're pitching an IPO, I think the people should come in for that pitch, right? Yeah. But if they're crunching the spreadsheets for 16 hours, you know, getting ready for a thing, like, do they need to come to the office that day for that? But I do think there are things that you need to be in person. You need to be in the office. So I'm not an absolute on it, but I just thought the paradox of those two like statements and results were really interesting. Telling people the thing that was an aberration was the thing that they just made your company the most money in its history. Oh, Robert, that's why I love your perspective. You're juxtaposing things, bringing together connections, distinctions, wisdom. So it's a hoot to be chatting again. And you got another work here. It's called Elevate Your Team. What's the big idea here? Yeah, so I wrote the book Elevate. It was about this concept of capacity building and how to use that to make yourself better and help train leaders really to be better. And a lot of the stuff that we were doing over the years, I realized was the same framework around, well, how would you take that same capacity building framework to an organization? So what does it look like for an organization these days? And look, better be lucky than good. And this book is coming out after when the playbook of just burn through people and grow your business is, is just not going to work anymore. People are too tired around how do you grow a business on the backs of your people and by growing your people, not say we want to grow this business and it sort of chews up people. So it takes that same spiritual, intellectual, physical, emotional framework and says, how do you apply these principles to the organization rather than to the individual leaders? And so for folks who didn't catch the last interview, I recommend you do, but could you give us a bit of a refresher? We talk about capacity and building and capacity building. Can you give us a definition, some synonyms for what we're talking about here? Yeah. So capacity building is just the method. I always say that the long definition is the method by which individuals seek, acquire, and develop the skills and ability to perform at a higher level. Simply, it's how you get better. I think it's the process of how to get better. And there's four pieces spiritual capacity, which is understanding who you are, what you want most, your values and the standards you want to live by. Intellectual capacity, which is about how you improve your ability to think, learn, plan, and execute with discipline. That's kind of your personal or organizational operating system. Physical capacity is health, well-being, and physical performance. And emotional capacity is a few different things. It's how you react to challenging situation, your emotional mindset, and I think the quality of, of your relationships. All right. So... In order for a team to flourish, well, I won't steal your thunder, but it sounds like, is it fair to say your thesis is you got to be 
building this capacity, growing in these domains in order to flourish as a team, an organization. And a human. So the take on this that I have is a little different is I think organizations should focus on making their people better, help them build their capacity holistically, not to just be good at their job today or the best robot for the assembly line, but how do you make them better at work and better in all aspects? Because at the same time, better father, mother, spouse, otherwise, because I think a lot of the things that people struggle with in work or there are a lot of their growth errors are the same outside, right? Particularly with people working from home, it's not like you wake out of bed cranky and tired and exhausted and jump into work and are a totally different person, right? You're, you're going to be the same person. I, I find people that are organized and disciplined and have routines at work, have them at home, you know, they tend to really go hand in hand. All right. Well, could you share with us in terms of what's the state of team capacity building these days? How are we doing with these principles, generally speaking? I don't think well, because I think that people are really burnt out and they're burnt out from two years of a global pandemic and the bounce back and all the changes. But that would imply that a lot of these things are out of whack, right? They're not clear on what they value and what they bring to the organization. I think one of the things that make people stay and interested in growing is an organization where there's intellectual, a lot of learning and feedback, and they're seeing how they're growing and opportunity. We know people's physical capacity is very diminished right now. So how can the organization help that not hurt it? Like, how do you <laughs> get people a break and some rest and get them recharged? And then again, I think that particularly now where you're in an environment again, where you have some layoffs and otherwise psychological safety becomes a big part of that. Like I know leaders struggle with, someone said to me yesterday at a keynote I was doing, one of the questions was, look, our industry, rough time, bad year probably some layoffs. Otherwise, like, what do we tell people? I was like, look, tell them the truth. <laughs> tell them what your parameters are, where you need their help, what you're going to do, communicate with them well, because there's going to be another company that are going to telling every people everything is fine and it's not. And they're really going to lose the trust of, of those folks. So I, I think people, when they know the truth and the reality, they're happy to stay with something. I think it's just when they don't feel like they're being told the whole story that, that you have problems. All right. Well, could you share with us a fun story about a true story with regard to a team who really saw a cool transformation when they did this capacity building stuff? They took it seriously. They implemented some goodies and they saw great results. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you some individual examples. So one of the things that we do with all of our leaders is that I got to give you two examples from spiritual and intellectual to talk about. We help our leaders figure out their personal core values. Because our belief is there is no acceleration partners type of leader. The best leader is going to be authentic. And we want to help them figure out what do they value? What are they good at? Like, what are the natural things? And the first time we did this and people figured these things out, they actually kind of wrote it up. They went back to their teams and they said, look, I really learned all these things about myself. This is how I kind of show up as a leader. This is what you can expect from me. This is what I need from you. And Three to six months later, we measured their performance before we, that offsite. We did all that and after, and really everyone improved dramatically. I just think their connections to their team went a lot higher. Again, example, intellectual capacity, learning, feedback. So we will do a training where we model fake conversations between employees and their managers, kind of ripped from the headlines. So we'd sit down and say, all right, Pete. So the crowd knows both sides of the story, the crowd watching this, but we give you a narrative. Pete, you just started at AP. You know, you've made some mistakes in the first couple of months, but you think you're doing great and you want to get promoted. 
And then there's Carly on the other side. And Carly has a card that says, you're meeting with your employee, Pete, and you just don't think he's going to make it. He has not the right attitude. He's made a bunch of mistakes. He doesn't seem to be getting it. And like, you need to sort of like let Pete know that this might not be the best place for him. And then we watch the people have that conversation and there's a lot of platitudes and there's a lot of dancing around. And now you see why people are on the same page and we, we say freeze. And then we have the team all comment in. And I say, how many people think that Pete knew his job was on the line and 20 people watching will say no. And then I was okay, what are some different ways you could have approached? And then we'll have them start the conversation again. And again, this is just the thing. Why do these conversations go so poorly all the time? Because people don't know how to do them. <laughs> and why do they dread? They haven't practiced them. This is an actual law and order practice, having very common, difficult conversations that managers are going to have. It's not surprising that people aren't good at something that they haven't been trained on and that they haven't done before. Okay. Well, let's just keep it rolling. Physically? Yeah. So physically, look, I think you're you're putting where your, your money where your mouth is on this in terms of one of the things that we did was we've done a couple of fitness contests where most companies say they want one something and then they incentivize another, right? They incentivize never leaving the desk and we'll get you food and we'll get you your vaccine shot without having to get up and or, or all this stuff. We have said to people on a couple of things, hey, we will cover, we will reimburse part of your vacation if you actually take seven days off and don't communicate with everyone and actually unplug. So we're, again, aligning the incentive to that behavior. Similarly, we've had like fitness challenges where people break into teams during the workday. They have to step aside a half an hour to do anything from walking to yoga to meditation to working out. And the teams get a point and the teams compete. And I think the winners got sort of an Apple watch. So again, very different viewpoint when the organization is is saying, hey, we're actually compensating you or paying you or valuing things that are designed to give you more time and pay attention to your physical health and make the workplace part of the solution, not part of the problem. All right. And emotionally? Yeah. So example, we've always had these employee TED Talks at our organization, at our AP annual summit. And one year we decided to step it up. There was a, a gentleman I knew named Philip McKernan, and he had a program called One Last Talk, where people get on stage and they basically deliver the, what is the one talk that you would deliver if this is your last day on earth? And these are not like, <laughs> he doesn't let anyone escape with, oh, three great things to live a great life or much more personal. So we had a bunch of volunteers. We picked four people. They trained for two months. They got up there and gave these speeches. and. There wasn't really a dry eye in the room. I mean, these were like deeply emotional speeches talking about aspects of their lives that many people wouldn't have known. What was interesting though, was that over the next day, the level of sharing across the company, like what people were talking to other people about, making connections. You and I worked together for five years and I never told you that I grew up in a single parent household and all that. And then you find out, I find out the same about you. It just, it was crazy watching how that opened the floodgates for people to want to connect on a more human level. And I think, again, that level of vulnerability just leads people to better relationships, more sharing, more understanding other people's perspectives and where they're, where they're coming from. And yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. That's cool. Well, it sounds like there is a boatload of approaches, strategies, tools, activities, tactics, interventions, stuff you can do to see some upgrades, some increased capacity in each of these domains. I'm curious, are there a few sort of top do's and don'ts that you recommend individuals and teams, organizations consider as we're looking to implement some of the stuff? 
I think that oftentimes people try to make too many changes at once. I think people are pretty good with change over time. Similar to New Year's resolutions, I always say, like, I'm a much bigger believer. If I saw a company go try to do everything that was in this book, I would think their success would be very slow. I think if they picked a couple things, started doing them, getting traction, I think that getting that 1% better each day or week and getting the compounding effect of that usually works better than rushing into a bunch of things that you don't have the time or energy or resources to support. Okay. And are there a few starting points that seem just excellent in your experience? Yeah, I guess it depends on the area, right? I think if we're talking about kind of a learning culture, I mean, some really easy things that you can do to start just getting more discussion and interaction, a book club, a podcast club, or even the CEO says, you can read this book and we get together and let's talk about it. Let's pick a topic. Let's bring, let's do a book. I mean, that's super easy. Reimbursing people for education and learning experiences. I think that's something that you can, you can do right away. There's also feedback, like really working with teams on teaching them how to give feedback. What's good feedback. So many of these things, I think we just, again, think that people know how to do. One of the examples I love and I used in the book is that um, Scribe, which is a book company that does a lot of stuff publishing books. So they actually teach their customers on how to give feedback to their team. And they say something like, look, saying you hate this cover is not super helpful to our design team. Saying this cover is off brand for the colors we like and the imagery I want to use. And I prefer imagery that is more X is a lot more helpful so it's really interesting, like in that context, they're even, you know, teaching that how to do feedback. So there's so many ways for, I think, companies to improve, but I think focusing on opportunities to learn and learn together is usually a pretty easy one of them. I love that notion about design feedback, because I always feel ridiculous when I'm sharing my feedback on designs, and yet designers seem to really love it. I was like, this font makes me feel like a child. You're like, oh, that's excellent. <laughs> I was like, really? Because I feel nutty when I say that out loud. <laughs> At least they know what you don't like yeah. about it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's fair on that. That's good. All right. Well, there's two things you you kind of touched upon that I think are really juicy. And I'd love to hear all the great, your favorite tools for them. First, let's talk about exhaustion. When folks are just tuckered out they're toast. And if you think they're going to come in and work 80 hours a week, even if they wanted to, I just think they're toast. And I actually think it's happening more in the leadership level, right? The leaders carried the water for that first year in COVID. And they had the, the kids they were worrying about and the sick parents and the their teams. And then I, I think eventually carrying all that water has, has really impacted them too. All right. So if you're good and exhausted, what do you recommend we start? It seems counterintuitive when there's a lot to do, but try to give people some real breaks, whether that is the weekend, whether that is their week vacation, whether that is not worrying about emails at six o'clock after night. You know, one of the tools that I've used for years and look, France in some places have taken them to extreme. I think you go to jail if you email people after five <laughs> o'clock, but sometimes like on a Saturday morning, I love to clear out emails from the week. And I learned when I was CEO that if I wrote someone an email on a Saturday, they thought they needed to respond. And I was often doing stuff after hours because that's when I had time to doing it. I wasn't looking for a response. That wasn't the expectation. So what I learned is just use delayed delivery. And so anytime I write something outside of kind of normal hours, I delay until eight o'clock the next workday. The side benefit of this is you can look really awesomely productive at 
eight o'clock in the morning when wow robert's give me six emails within minutes <laughs> yeah, yeah you can do 758 759 8801 you know now you feel like a slacker in the morning but i i think people really appreciate that particularly when you are a leader and you're emailing other people on your team they don't know the priority people tend to assume that everything is important and not that just you felt like writing the email to them at that time yeah or I had a cool idea and I wanted to get it on, on paper. And while I was right, and while it's there, how about I copy, paste, send? That's the other thing I do. I keep a notepad for everyone I meet with. And I take that cool idea and I put it in the part of the OneNote. And that way I sit down and talk about the four ideas as well. So they're not getting bombarded with ADD at different points of night and day. That's good. Okay. So exhaustion, real breaks, whether that's guidelines on the email timing or expectations, clarity that we're not doing stuff over the weekend or that week vacation is true and real. And yeah, and look, model the behavior. So I'm a leader. I'm going on vacation this weekend. If you need to reach me by emergency, here's the thing. Put on my auto, add a reply. Don't email from vacation because people will do what you say. This is the same rule for parenting. People will do what you do, not what you say. And that's where I think it's really important. If you tell people, oh, it's fine to take a vacation, but then you say you're going on vacation, you have no out of office and you're emailing all week. What they take away from that is that it's not okay to take a vacation. Yeah, I remember when I was an intern, I, I got the memo in terms of, on the one side, the recruiting teams wanted the interns to have a truly fantastic experience so they go back to their university and say, oh my gosh, you got to work here. But then there was your actual work team <laughs> and they wanted useful stuff from you that that brought things forward and, and served the client. And so I quickly learned, oh, in order to do well here, I need to completely ignore the preference of the recruiting team who wants me to not work much and work as much as necessary to advance the stuff and have things look great for the team I'm working with. Okay, don't listen to them, do listen to them. Got it. And look, this is the exact point is that everyone figures this stuff out because the culture values it implicitly or explicitly, right? And it's not like anyone told you this, but you very quickly figure out the rules of the road and what you need to do. And that that becomes the default point of behavior. And then you think it's normal and you teach it to the next person. Yeah. I literally had a friend. I mean, I think in five years, the people he worked for never let him have a vacation without calling him or bothering him. I There's just so many reasons why that's wrong. It's actually even bad for the company. Like give the person a break so they actually feel refreshed and coming back. I think you should want people to have a life outside of work. They will do better work. Yep, agreed. All right, now let's talk about the folks having difficulty with real conversations. And you say, of course, it's to be expected. They don't have training or practice very much in that domain. What are some great first steps to developing that skill set? Practice, right? I think we collect a lot of podcasts that talk about certain topics. Hey. How do you have this sort of conversation? How do you have a difficult employee conversation? I remember when I interviewed Patty McCord at Netflix, who sort of was part of their whole culture in the culture deck. She talked about when she was training people to do changes in jobs or whatever, she told them to call their own voicemail, say what they were going to say and listen to it three times, right? Just even some basic rep and practice, talk to other people. There's very few things that when you do it for the first time, have never practiced it, it's going to go well. I think when you think about in sports, no one does that. In business, we do that all the time. I wrote a Friday Forward about being a speaker at a conference, and I was sort of the general speaker, and there's a subject matter expert after me, and I 
I had checked the timing beforehand. I had met with the AV people. I had looked at the thing. I had set up my computer. He came in with three times the amount of slides as the amount of time, didn't set up AV. They, someone had to do his computer. He had great content, but he got pulled off stage because he never went through a dry run or practiced, or it just doesn't really work well to do things for the first time and do them on stage. You should practice anything that you're going to do. In fact, someone was saying, you know, our sales team, one thing that we can do better is when we go into some big pitches and we did this years ago in front of an important one was like, we practiced the whole thing an hour beforehand. And what we noticed was we had some awkward transitions. Like, oh no, no, Pete, you take that. No, I'll take that. And we worked those transitions out during the practice, which had we not done it, we would have made those mistakes in real time. And when it comes to the practice of difficult conversations, it's tricky because okay, there's a person, there's an issue, and we got to talk about it. And yet, if I want to practice it with them, it's sort of already the performance. Well, you got to practice it with other people, not with them. But you could practice it with your manager. You could practice it with a peer. Again, you could practice it with yourself. You could sit down there and record it and be like, that sounds not good. Or again, you can learn some tools that you can use. So here's one that I've learned and I learned through all those trainings. We know the sandwich concept, right? And if you watch it, it's so awkward. Like when someone starts a praise, then I'm going to deliver the real thing I want to say and then wrap it with praise at the end. And you confuse people and they're like, wait, 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 am I being reprimanded? Because it's like two positives and a negative, but the negative was the real reason why you were having the conversation. The last time I had to have one of those really difficult conversations, I actually picked up a cue from someone else I heard. And I started by saying, hey, we're going to have a really difficult conversation. So I just want to let you know that. That just totally changes the demeanor to me fumbling around for a minute and being like, hey, Pete, What's going on? Like, you know, so again, I had to learn that. I learned that from someone else. I learned that that was the best practice. I applied the best practice and it was difficult, but I think it went about as good as it could go. And the other benefit is if you know how to do these things, then you don't lose nights of sleep beforehand <laughs> on it. Like, this is the whole point on capacity. Capacity is not more. When you think about intellectual capacity, it's like if you have a better operating system, if you know how to do it smarter or faster, it should be less energy. I'm not going to say like, but if I've had 20 of these difficult conversation things and I walk into one, it will cost me a lot less energy and grief and all this stuff. Like I'll just, I will know how to do it. That to me is the definition of capacity because it's, it's getting more done with less resources, not more with more resources. That's good. Okay. So Robert, this is cool stuff focused on the organization, the team, the leader level. If we find ourselves individual contributors who would like this stuff to be happening in our organizations, but isn't, what do we do? Yeah, look, you can become a leader in the organization with different ways. So again, perfect example, just because you're an individual contributor does not mean you couldn't start the book club mm -hmm. or the podcast club or a class or help start the fitness competition, you know, for everyone at the organization. So you want to honor individual contributors who don't want to be leaders. I think there's a difference between wanting to be an individual contributor, not have a big team and wanting to be a loner and not care about other people at the, at the organization. I think actually what would make an individual contributor stronger is the more connection they have to the company overall. So I think they should look at these things as opportunities. All right. Well, Robert, anything else you want to make sure to mention? Another thing I will mention is when we talk about the spiritual capacity and the core values and helping your team understand their core values, 
in Elevate, I did not have anywhere to point people to do this. Um, we started building it out over the years. We started doing it with our team. I turned it into a course. There's some information on that in the book, but there's also, if you go to corevaluescourse.com, if you're interested for yourself or for your team to figure out what are our core values, there's an actual process that'll take you through that. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I want to hear more about it. What's the process look like? Yeah. So it, it goes through a bunch of different behavioral-based questions to figure out in different environments in your life, where are you successful or not successful? And I think when you answer these questions and you're asked to start to pull the answers together, you start to see some pretty consistent themes around where you show up and are highly engaged and where you are disengaged. And it starts kind of setting the foundation for what your personal core values might look like. And then it gives you kind of a process to suss those out. All right, cool. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? What the wise man does at the beginning, the fool does at the end. I've always liked that one. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I was reading about the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, recently, which was pretty interesting. Dunning-Kruger is that the people who understand something the least often have the greatest overconfidence in their knowledge on the subject. And so it's a, it's an interesting study in, in organization otherwise. Sometimes the loudest voice on something is often the most uninformed. And a favorite book? I love Atlas Shrugged is, is, is one of my favorite books. The book I give to a lot of people is a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Oh, I love it. We had... <laughs> it's sort of the definitive book I have it on my desk here on cognitive dissonance. And I interviewed the authors recently. Like, I think cognitive dissonance is so prevalent in everything we do every day. And just understanding that's a huge competitive advantage. And a favorite tool, something you used to be all awesome about your job. I don't think I could live without this tool called SceneBox, which takes your email, filters it out, lets you snooze it to come back. So it just keeps a lot of email that you don't need to read out of your peripheral vision. And I remember one time my subscription expired and like 300 emails like dropped back into my inbox and I almost had a panic attack. Like that's, that's how you know a tool is valuable to you. <laughs> <laughs> and a favorite habit? I like brewing French brew coffee and it takes five or 10 minutes. So I try to time some, I like the concept of habit stacking. So I try to do something else during those five or 10 minutes that I wouldn't do, whether it's writing in a journal or stretching or otherwise, because I can tie it to doing that every day. So I like the concept of, of stacking a habit, like something you're already doing with something that, that you want to be doing. Okay. And is there a key nugget you share that you're known for? Folks are always quoting this Robert Glazer gem. Friday Ford, I think is the most popular of all time. It's called the BS of busy. And I think there are some things in there around many of us are busy or just saying that as an answer to everything. And we really need to understand. It's not a great answer to how are you busy when someone asks. So I think we need to move away from being busy to being productive and being fulfilled. And so I've talked about that a few different times. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah. So everything of mine, Friday Forward Books, podcast, everything is at Robert glazer.com, including the new book. Uh, if you want the shortest path to the new book, it's uh, EYT, like elevate your team, EYTbook.com. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. The final challenge I think would be figure out what is most important to your organization today and then see how you can be helpful to it. All right. Robert, it's been a treat. I wish you much luck and elevation. Thank you, Pete. I really love Robert's perspective associated with Watch out what you're incentivizing, maybe explicitly in terms of compensation bonus situations, as well as implicitly in terms of the emails, when are they coming from you? Or is there a little bit of a stigma associated with not being quick 
on the email reply or Slack reply. So you're, you really do need to be at your desk and thus the workout fitness incentives aren't going to be resonating as much. It reminds me of a classic paper entitled On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B. That's linked in the show notes over to awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP846. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.